0: Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Cat, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Kat. Well, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? That song written by Charles Wesley holds so much truth about the gospel and the message of salvation. It is true whether you are a grandparent or a graduate, whether you are a single or a senior saint, it is an amazing love that Christ would die for us. And sometimes we forget that. In fact, they forgot it in the first century. The Galatians had forgotten that it was by grace through faith that they were saved, that it was all of Jesus and none of them. And so they were adding things to the gospel, and they were forsaking that scandalous freedom that we have in Christ Jesus who sets us free from the works of the law or keeping the law to be justified, but simply falling at the mercy and the grace of God for our justification, our salvation, and our sanctification. And we make the same mistakes. They were making it just 30 years maybe after the time of the death and resurrection of Christ and we make it now in the 21st century. And the one thing we have to do is we have to avoid making the same mistakes over and over. One of the lessons we learn from history is if you don't learn history you make the same mistakes. It's kinda like the two old boys that went elk hunting out in the west and they flew out west and they went to shoot some elk and so they had uh, the pilot dropped them in there and they were there for about a week or so and they had killed six elk the pilot came back to get them at the appointed time and when he arrived they brought these six elk out and he the pilot said you can't do that so "It's just fours the weight limit that's all we can take and the two hunters said well sir I'll just have you know, we we killed six last year, and we took six last year. And so after this lengthy argument about how they could do it, they put the six elk on that plane, tied them down, got on the plane, and the plane took off, and in a matter of minutes, it crashed. And the two hunters started crawling out of that plane wreck, and one turned to the other one and said, Have you got any idea where we are? And he said, Yeah, I think we're in the same place we crashed last year. We must learn from mistakes, and one of the mistakes that the Galatians were making is a mistake that we often make, that I somehow, by my good works, by my good deeds, by my baptism, by my church membership, can add something to the finished work of Christ. Now, this issue is a real issue, and let me make a couple of statements here as we begin. We have no right— We have no right to redefine the message of the gospel or the nature of the church. It is not our prerogative to do that. Secondly, not only do we have no right to redefine the message of the gospel or the nature of the church, but although methods will vary from generation to generation, the message is unchanging The message is unchanging. We cannot change the message. Methods and styles may change, but if substance changes, we're in trouble. The substance of the gospel is very clear, although the word evangelical has taken on a broader meaning and in some ways has lost its meaning. But we need to understand that the gospel is not ours to change. We are simply stewards of eternal truths. So I invite you to pick up with me this morning in verse 6 of Galatians as we continue the Free to Live series, and let's begin reading in verse 6. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some of you who are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, He is to be accursed. Now there are many Gospels out there today. Most of them are very easy to refute. doesn't take a rocket scientist to refute these. The Gospel of Oprah, the Gospel of Dr. Phil, the Gospel of science and technology, the Gospel of humanism, the Gospel of self-effort and self-improvement, the Gospel of the lost Gospels, the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of the Da Vinci Code, The Secret, which is one of the New York Times best-selling books, which is nothing more than just a really weak book that people are dumb enough to pay money for. You can refute those. I mean, anybody can refute those. You You could teach a fifth grader to refute those Gospels by just teaching them the basic truth. This doesn't take an adult mind to refute this, but people become childish sometimes and they fall into this and think, oh, that sounds good. It must work. But then there is another gospel that is a little more subtle. And that gospel says, I need to come to Christ to be saved, but I need to be baptized to really be saved. Or I need to have this or that to really be saved. Or I need to work to maintain my salvation. That is an abuse of grace. And that is a spirituality that is not scriptural. There's a lot of talk of spirituality today, but it's not scriptural spirituality. It's just this otherworldly kind of thinking that has no basis in the scriptures. And while there is room for disagreement on various and sundry things in the Bible, you can disagree about the interpretation about the second coming. You can disagree about whether some gifts are valid now or not. There is no room for negotiation on the fundamental doctrine of salvation. Now understand this, if you do not get the doctrine of salvation correct, no other doctrine will be correct. If you don't get salvation right, then your doctrine and understanding of sanctification and of lordship and of living the Christian life, everything about your life and your doctrine and your belief system system will be out of balance if you don't get salvation right. Because the doctrine of salvation is by grace alone, in Christ alone, by faith alone. And in light of that, I want to ask you some questions. These come out of the book of Galatians. You don't have to stand up and answer them. But uh, I just want to ask you some questions that, as I was studying this, the Lord brought these to mind. Question number one, are you trusting in Christ alone to save you? Now, you need to ask yourself that question. The scriptures say we should examine ourselves to see whether or not we're in the faith. Because somebody may come up to you and say, hey, do you know Jesus Christ? Oh, I'm a member of Sherwood. That's not what they ask you. Are you trusting in Christ alone to save you? Secondly, are you overwhelmed by guilt or grace? Because you see, The gospel is to set the captives free. And if you're captivated and captured and in bondage to guilt, then you don't understand what grace does and how grace sets us free to live the life that God has called us to live. Question number three. Are you overwhelmed by fear or the love of God? The scripture says that perfect love casts out fear. Are you overwhelmed by fear? Do you live your life fear, worry, anxiety, or do you live your life overwhelmed by the love of God, which teaches you to have the kind of reverence for God that you're supposed to have, but not a fear of, oh no, what happens if I don't cut it every moment of my life? Number four, do you think grace excludes you from living a holy and responsible life? You see, one of the things that happens is not only legalism, but license that says, oh, now that I'm saved, got my ticket to heaven. That's the worst part about people that don't understand eternal security. See, the folks that don't understand eternal security, they're scared they're going to mess up. But those of us who understand eternal security and the fact that when Christ saves you, he keeps you, some people say, that's my ticket into heaven, I can live like hell and still get there. Grace does not allow you to do whatever you want to do. Grace allows you to surrender yourself to do what God wants you to do. And to do it with joy. Grace is not a ticket for bad behavior. It's a ticket for humility and brokenness. Question number five. When under pressure, do you find yourself responding in your flesh... Or in the power of the Spirit. Paul will talk about in this book about the works of the flesh and the deeds of the flesh being obvious, and then he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. So when you're under pressure, do you respond with what he talks about in Galatians 5 with the works and the deeds of the flesh, or do you respond with the fruit of the Spirit? These are operational questions. These are philosophical questions, how we live our lives. And in light of that, I want you to see the indignation of Paul as he deals with these people who are walking away from grace. Martin Luther, in his commentary on Galatians, says, there is a difference between Christian righteousness and all other kinds of righteousness. John Calvin, in his commentary on Galatians, said, the false apostles had entered in his absence and corrupted the true seed by false and corrupt dogmas. This might seem trivial, but Paul fights for it as a fundamental article of the Christian faith. These are fundamental truths. And Paul doesn't waste any time he takes a bold and aggressive, hard attack on these Judaizers and on the church for falling for these lies. Look at what he says. He says, I'm amazed, astonished. The word means it it conveys a rebuke. He's struck down. He's shocked. He cannot believe. He said, I'm no further than the city limits, and you're already letting false teachers influence you. I'm just barely outside the door, and these people come in behind me, and you say, oh, what Paul said sounded good, but, you know, this kind of sounds good, too. Paul is amazed. He's shocked. He's indignant about this. He is angry about this. Don't ever think that there's not a righteous anger. There is a righteous anger, and Paul is showing it here. Why? Because, first of all, they were following a false gospel. They were following a false gospel. They were on the verge of throwing away grace and wanting to pay for the free gift of grace and salvation. We're going to do something to help God out. And they were perverting the gospel. They were taking the gospel of grace and adding works and rules to it. And whenever you add anything to the gospel, you distort its character. The character of the gospel it is through Jesus Christ, and you can't add anything to it. So they were preaching a false gospel. Secondly, they were making foolish and flawed decisions. They were making foolish and flawed decisions. Look at what he says. You are so quickly deserting him. Not Paul. They were deserting Christ. You're quickly deserting him. That that is, if I remember, it's a passive voice in a present tense. It means they're in the process of going a wall. They're about to forsake the gospel. They are moving toward apostasy. They are moving toward a denial of truth. They are moving away and in the process of deserting. It would be like, You've raised and nurtured your children. You've taught them to do right. And the first stranger that drives by and opens the door and says, Here, son, I've got a piece of candy. Get in a car with me. They go, Oh, sounds good. Candy, let's jump in. That's exactly what these Galatians were doing. They were just jumping in the car with anybody that rode by and offered them something. Now, look at what this uh, in King James is a poor translation, by the way, of this phrase, you are so quickly deserting him. King James says, so you are so soon removed from him, which implies, in fact, King James uses a passive verb there. It implies that somebody else is responsible for their actions. Now, that's important. New American Standard says, you are so quickly deserting him implication is responsibility is you you're deserting him king james uses a passive verb and the implication of the way it's worded in king james is well you know it's 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 the reason they're there that's the reason you're doing it paul does not relieve them of their responsibility paul says you may have heard it but you should have rejected it you are rejecting christ you are deserting christ Don't blame it on the Judaizers. Don't point at them and say, well, you know, if they hadn't come around, I wouldn't have made all these mistakes. Don't get into that uh, blaming and pointing fingers. You're responsible, and you're deserting Christ. Now, why did they do it? First of all, because they lacked discernment. They lacked discernment. They were clueless. It did, but sounds good, so it must be true. Just because somebody has a robe on or a collar on backwards or a suit on and somebody is carrying a Bible with them doesn't mean that what they're saying is always true. You're supposed to test the Word and to test the spirits. And your spirit should bear witness with the Word of God and what is being spoken. Not only do they lack discernment, they lack depth. They lack depth. They just weren't going any deeper. They had heard Paul, they're kind of caught up in the moment, and they say, boy, this is great, but I mean, when the the emotions are gone, they didn't have any depth. They weren't digging into the Word of God. That's why our study of Scripture is so important, because when you are deeper with God, you're more aware of false teachings and false teachers. You see, if you desert the gospel of grace, you're also deserting the God of grace. There's not two Gospels just like there's not two gods. If you desert the Gospel of grace, you're deserting the God of grace. And, and if it matters to you who's trying to get into your house, if it matters to you who's standing at your front door, then it should matter to you who gets in your head, and who gets your mind, and who gets your heart, and who gets your attention. In 2 Corinthians eleven two, 2, Paul says, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Now look at what Paul says, Second Corinthians eleven two and 3. What Paul says, he says, I, I'm the one that led you to Christ. I'm the one that introduced you to him, but I'm to introduce you to him as a pure virgin and and you're to be wed to Christ. You're not wed to me, you're wed to Christ. And I want to present you pure before Christ when he comes back. Now, I am the father of two daughters, and part of my responsibility as a father of two daughters is to do everything within my power, to teach them and to protect them so that when they stand before an altar one day and get married, which I hope is about 20 years from now, when they do that, that they are pure before God and pure before their husband. That there are no regrets, no apologies, nothing that has to be told because of embarrassment about bad decisions in the past. So when a guy shows up, I make it my business to know all I can. And I also make it my business to let them know I don't have any problem going back to prison if you mess with my daughter. (laughs) They need chaplains in prison. And I don't have a problem going and being a chaplain after I do your funeral. (laughs) Why? Because my responsibility as a dad is to protect my daughters. Our responsibility with the gospel is to protect it so that when we stand before Christ, we are standing before Him pure. Now, he uses a word here, the word simplicity. It's also used in 2 Corinthians eleven three, 3, which means sincerity or singleness of devotion. Now, let me ask you to write this statement down. A divided heart leads to a defiled life. A divided heart leads to a defiled life and a destroyed relationship. A divided heart leads to a defiled life and a destroyed relationship. Vance Havner said, It's sometimes said of certain unsound books and strange cults, but there is some truth in them. Would you say, this milk has some arsenic in it, but most of it's milk, so go ahead and drink it? What we would apply to milk and arsenic, we sometimes forget to apply to the truth. You don't mix a little bit in and say, well, you know, I know that this guy is off base on this, and he's off base on this, and he's off base on this, but he's got some truth in what he says. Hey, even the devil can tell the truth. I mean, the devil can tell the truth sometimes. There are times when the devil will tell you, you can get away with this. And you will for a while. You don't mix truth and error. And you don't get away from the simplicity of the gospel. Oh, that's simple. You know, now, you know, it, it, students, you know, oh, I'm going to college and we got people with PhDs there. It just means they're brighter dummies. That's all it means. Just because somebody has a Ph.D. doesn't mean that they know how to cross a parking lot without getting run over. Now, I'm not against education, but education is not going to get you into heaven. And education is not going to change your life. What's going to change your life is Jesus Christ. And if you take your education under the gospel, then your education will be the right one. You know what to throw out and you know what to keep. And you need to know what to throw out and you need to know what to keep. The first thing you need to know is most of what you learn in college, you're not going to use for the rest of your life. Just get the grades, get out, and get out of your mom and daddy's wallet. That's all you got to know about. <laughs> and The quicker you do that, the more they will rise up and call you blessed. <laughs> Amen, parents? Mm-hmm. Now, there's some predictable patterns of false teachers. Let me give you some. There, in fact, there are four. Number one, they start tampering with things like the atonement and the virgin birth, the miracles, the resurrection, the blood of Christ. They start tampering with the basics of the gospel. They start playing around the edges. Well, you know, we we shouldn't get hung up on whether or not Jesus was virgin-born, where if he wasn't, then he's not sinless. If he's not sinless, he can't save us. If he can't save us, we're lost. That matters. Secondly, they start adding fleshly efforts and works to salvation. Hey, now that you're saved, you better do all this so that God will be pleased with you. I don't do all that so God will be pleased with me. I do what I do because I love God and I want to do it because I want to please Him. I'm not trying to gain His favor. I'm trying to express my love. There's a difference in motivation. Number three, they're always encouraging you to read the newest author or book or listen to the newest series of messages. There are a lot of people that spend their lives saying, Did you hear what so-and-so said about God? Rather than finding out what God said himself, you know, God doesn't need us to interpret himself. He's been very clear. He's given us a book. It's called the Bible. We're to read it. It's in your hands not to collect dust and not to be there to sit on the coffee table. It's in your hands to use and to become familiar with it. And although you may listen to other people, and I hope you do, and you may read other books, and I hope you do, read the right books, listen to the right people, but never exalt them over the teaching of the Holy Spirit through His book, which is the greatest way to learn the Bible. Number, where are we at? Four. Rarely do they take you to Scripture. They will use Scripture out of context to abuse the body of Christ. They will take a scripture out of context and say, well, you know, you need to be baptized to be saved. You see, there's three verses that say that. Well, you can take three verses out of the context of the total message of the gospel, out of the book that they're in, out of the books that are around them, out of what is said before and after what that verse says, and you can come up with just about anything. You can do the hunt and peck method. Judas went out and hung himself. Go thou and do likewise, and what thou doest do quickly. All three of those are Bible verses. I would not encourage you to use them in that order. But they will will use Scripture. Oh, here's what the Bible says. The cult groups will come to your front door, and they'll tell you what certain things in the Bible say. And you go, I didn't know the Bible said that. That's because you don't have depth. That's because you're not reading and studying. You're not prepared to give a witness and a defense of your faith. I can tell you as a pastor of this church, I get shocked and astonished, and I get righteously indignant when I see members of this flock who buy into shady teachings, shallow teachings, emotional teachings, secondary issues as primary, and they get led off of a track, and then they read some book, and they think, oh, this book has enlightened me. The question I always ask, and I always get the wrong answer when people go down that path. Did you get what you believe out of reading the Word of God under the influence of the Holy Spirit and submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Or did you get what you believe by paying $7.95 for that book at Barnes & Noble? Where'd you get it from? Because I want to tell you, there's a lot of junk out there, and a lot of it is in Christian bookstores. Your best life now is not based on Scripture, and it's sold 20 million copies. It's not based on the Bible. The author of that book said that he agonized over every word of that book. Can I just give you a little insight? I know this for a fact. He did a two-and-a-half-hour interview, and a ghostwriter wrote the entire book based on a two-and-a-half-hour interview. First of all, he lied about how he even wrote the book, but he's going to smile and take your money. Don't be stupid, because there are people out there that want your money, want your life, want your attention, and they don't have your best interest at heart. I want to tell you who has your best interest at heart. The leadership of this church has your best interest at heart, because we care because you're the sheep of this flock. And this pastor and this staff and our deacons and our Sunday school teachers care about what happens to you that you don't end off on a tangent somewhere and leave the basics of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's too important to us. And I'm like Paul. I get wroth (laughs) when I see that happen. All right, let's move on. Verse 7. He talks about disturbing and distort." Three times you find the word "distort" in the New Testament, Acts 20, at Acts chapter two, Galatians 1 and James 4. He says it means to turn about or to change into opposite character or to pervert, to distort. Disturbing means troubling or agitating. He says, they're disturbing you, they're agitating you, they're confusing you. And God's never the author of confusion. And they're distorting this. And it's a different gospel, which is not really another. Now, let me ask you to write something down, and somewhere along the line, write it in your Bible, not just in your notes, so that you can keep this. If you work to earn your salvation, if you work to earn your salvation, then God owes you salvation as wages you've earned it. If you work to earn your salvation, God owes you. He has to give you salvation because you've worked for it. That's a distortion of the gospel. It's not really the gospel. In fact, the God owes me is the very heart and nature, listen to me, of the prosperity gospel. The very heart and nature of the health and wealth and prosperity gospel is, I tell God I want something, He's got to give it to me. He does not. He doesn't even have to give you salvation. He chose to do that. God doesn't owe us healing. God doesn't owe us health. God doesn't owe us blessings, a new car, money in a bank. God doesn't owe us any of that. That's a distortion of the gospel, and it's not even the gospel. Now, it sells well on television, which is why we never get letters from television about our program. Because I don't preach that kind of stuff, and I don't say, I'll send you my prayer cloth, and you can put it on your forehead, and it'll heal you. What was wrong with this person? Oh, well, they came in, and then when they heard you, you ever notice when they heard you, not when they met Jesus, when they heard you, their lives were changed. Folks, I want to tell you something. Forget the messenger and make sure the messenger is pointing people to the cross. If he's not pointing people to the cross, turn it off. Quit listening to him. He says it's a different, the word there is heteros, from which we get our word heresy. It's a heresy, he says, another of a different kind that's not really the gospel. In fact, he says later on in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 21, if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Look at verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel, contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Two tests of ministry. First of all, the test of ministry is not popularity and miracles. It's not popularity and miracles. That's not the test. I mean, the devil can do miracles. He did that in the book of Exodus. Every time Moses did something with the rod of, of the God, then the, the false prophets of Egypt would come around and counter and do something just like it. The devil can do miracles. That's not the test of ministry. The test of ministry is faithfulness to Jesus Christ. The test of ministry is faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Now look at what Paul does. Paul says, let them be accursed. The word there is anathema, and it is in, in the imperative mood, indicating an actual condition. Now, I won't go as hard as Paul goes here, but I want to tell you what he says. Paul says, if anybody preaches a different gospel, they add works to it, they add baptism to it, they add the sacraments to it, they add taking the elements to it, they add going to confession to it, if they add anything, listen to me, anything to the gospel. Paul says, let them be condemned to hell. Now that doesn't sound very nice, does it? then you're going to have to pick it up with the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit inspired this book, and that's exactly what the Holy Spirit said. you got somebody that says, oh yeah, I'm saved, I'm a Christian, I've been baptized. Paul says, let them be condemned to hell if they're preaching that kind of gospel. I'm not saying Baptists are better than anybody else because we got as many lost Baptists as we got saved. What I'm saying is, you can't add anything to the gospel. And Paul says, I want to tell you how bad it is. It is so bad that if you do that anathema, Let them be condemned to eternal damnation if they preach anything other than the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and the blood of the cross. Do you realize that Paul was more merciful on the backsliders in Corinth than he was on these legalists in Galatia? Now, don't get mad at the messenger. I'm just here to deliver it. I'm just telling you that you can't add anything to the gospel. And some of you right now are thinking, yeah, but they're sincere, but they're lost. Yeah, but they're good people, but they're lost. Folks, you can't tell me as many people claim to be Christians or Christians in America because our country wouldn't stink like it stinks like now if they were really saved. If we really had... 180 million Christians in America like some people estimate, it wouldn't stink like it does right now. We wouldn't be having the debates we're having right now. But they're good, but they're sincere. You can be sincere and walk in front of a car and you're still going to get run over. We need to understand that the gospel is narrow, and when Jesus said there's a narrow way and a wide way, he meant it's a very narrow way. You come To Christ alone. You don't give your heart to a minister. You don't give your heart to a program. You don't give your heart to a denomination. You don't give your heart to a church. You give your heart to Jesus. That's the only way that a person can be saved. Martin Luther in 1521 was already world-renowned. Four years earlier, he had nailed his 95 Theses to the Wittenberg Church. He challenged the hierarchy, the Catholic Church. Like any Bible teacher, there were non-essentials to Luther, for which he would not argue and debate, but there were some that were essentials and non-negotiables. There were two for Paul and for Luther. If you summarize the Gospels and Paul's epistles, you will find two things, basically, that come to the forefront. And these were true for Martin Luther, which is the basis of the Reformation. Number one, we are saved by grace through faith. The just shall live by faith. That phrase appears four times in the Bible, one in the Old Testament, three in the New Testament. The just live by faith. We are saved by grace through faith. No other way. Here's a young man A monk in the Catholic Church who tried all he could to please God. He tried to do all the things that he was supposed to do to please God and somehow get the favor of God, and one day it struck him. Galatians was the book that he was reading. The just shall live by faith. Secondly, Scripture, not the church, is the test of truth. Now, our Catholic friends would say that the church determines what truth is. That's not what the Bible says. Scripture, not the church, determines what's truth. That's why the pope can issue an edict that overrides the edict that was issued by a pope before him. Because truth can change, it can waver, it can move with them. But truth is truth, no matter what anybody thinks about it. It is scripture. Not the church that determines truth. The Pope declared that Luther was to be bound for hell. The emperor, Charles V, demanded that Luther appear before him and ordered him to come before him as a heretic of the established church. So in April of 1521, Luther appeared alone while Charles and others were surrounded with their advisors. Luther was told he could not speak. He was ordered to answer just two questions. And as the king sat with books before him, books that Luther had written, Luther was asked to answer only two questions. Number one, did you write this book? And number two, if so, is there a part in them you choose to recant? Did you write it? Did you say this? And second question, is there a part that you choose to recant? Finally, after several days of wars of words, one of the church officials said, you must give a simple, clear, proper answer to the question, will you recant or not? One of the most famous statements to ever come out of Martin Luther's lips was unless I can be instructed with evidence from the Holy Scriptures, I cannot and will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Cat. For more information about Sherwood, visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. Thanks for listening, and join us next week for another podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church.